Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Good evening. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're just days away from November 3rd, traditionally Election Day, but millions of Americans have already voted, including residents in Connecticut. More than half a million voters to date have dropped off or mailed their absentee ballots, choosing to take advantage of a state law that allows no excuse voting by absentee ballot because of the pandemic. This election is expected to break voter turnout records and we may not know who won the election until days later. This hour, we'll talk about this election in Connecticut and nationally. Tonight, we're joined by experienced reporters and some of our favorite political scientists. With me in studio, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, political science professor and senior director for inclusive excellence at Quinnipiac University. She's host of the Connecticut public radio show, Disrupted, and author of Identity Politics in the United States. Dan Haar is with us, a columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Hearst is collaborating on the production of tonight's election special with Connecticut Public. And Dr. Jonathan Wharton, associate professor of political science and urban affairs and interim associate graduate school dean at Southern Connecticut State University. So much has happened in the news in the last two months alone. We know COVID-19 and the economy have been on the minds of many of us. But what about the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court? Senate Republicans sprinted in the days after the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg to confirm the president's choice, Amy Coney Barrett, without any votes from the minority party. The court now has a 6-3 conservative majority. Will this have ramifications on the election? Emily Munson covers Washington for Hearst, Connecticut newspapers. She describes the role of one Connecticut senator in the confirmation hearings. So Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal is a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that means that he participated in the hearings and the debate leading up to her confirmation. He got to question Amy Coney Barrett um, during the Senate Judiciary hearings, um, and he voted against her at the committee level and at the full Senate level. And like other Democrats, Blumenthal was in a position where he opposed this confirmation, but there was very little that Democrats could do to try to slow down or stop the confirmation. So a lot of their statements uh, during the committee meetings, as well as their questions, were aimed at uh, the American electorate, trying to convince voters to punish Republicans at the ballot box for pursuing a confirmation so close to election day and a confirmation of a fairly Republican, uh, excuse me, conservative justice. Um, so we saw Blumenthal do things like move to indefinitely postpone the confirmation 
uh, process. And of course, Republicans said, no way. But that was one procedural tactic that Blumenthal and Democrats tried to slow things down and register their opposition to the proceedings. And as you mentioned, uh, all the Democrats uh, this week voted against confirming Barrett um, and only Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, joined them in the opposition in the final vote. We should note Senator Blumenthal joined a Democratic walkout in the Judiciary Committee. So he did not cast a vote then, but he did vote against the nomination in earlier procedural votes. I wanted to start with you, Kalila. Does the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett change this presidential election? I think it makes it clear that when we vote, we're not just voting for a president. And I think to understand that a president can only serve for four or eight years, but they can really leave a lasting imprint on the country for generations based on the composition of the court. So I think that now, particularly in this pandemic, that people are thinking about what will it mean if I don't have access to health care when I'm already struggling to make ends meet? I think across the political spectrum, people are paying attention in a way that I think in most years we don't usually tune into Supreme Court nominations. When we think about our country, we think about it as a centrist country. So now that we have a 6-3 conservative majority, what does that mean? It also means two things. One, we have been disabused of the notion that judges are apolitical that they are only thinking about what's in front of them because that confirmation process can often set the tone for what to expect. But it also means we're now hearing conversations about the size of the court, why we have the size that we do, what is the constitutional mandate for that? And to think about the highest court in this land, nowhere in the Constitution does it say you have to be a U.S. citizen to be on the court. It doesn't even say you have to be an attorney to be on the court. And so I think people are having that conversation in spaces we didn't expect. And it's really becoming an issue for the candidates of will you expand the court if you are in office or will you abide by precedent? Jonathan, I started off asking if this would be impacting the presidential election. When we think about uh, President Trump, did he need this to shift attention away from how badly the administration handled this pandemic? Is this a win for President Trump to have a third nominee to the court? It is a win. Uh, I don't think it has so much to do anything with the pandemic. It speaks more towards his base. He is trying to rally his base as best as he can to make sure that they do turn out next week. And so this is a reminder to, especially on the farthest right of the party, that he is out there for him. And, you know, and, and more importantly, it is a lasting reminder of what a presidency can do, even in the you know, last possible hours of an administration. Dan, what do we know about how the Supreme Court, how that plays into the minds of Connecticut voters as they think about whether they're going to vote absentee or going in person to vote, how they're going to make up their mind of which candidate to Well, I, I, don't, I don't know that I agree with Jonathan that it's, a, that it's helping Trump because of his base, because his base was already there. I think where it helps him is in the post-election fight that he's planning, and he's already signaled it. And as a matter of fact, he said it exactly, precisely connected with this nominee. Uh, he said, we're going to go to a fight on this because of the uh, uh, absentee ballot and the delayed ballot problem that he thinks is a problem, even though he participates in it. Um, in Connecticut, I do not think that voters, certainly that I've talked with, people don't think that much in that much granularity. They're thinking more broadly. They're angry at Trump or they support Trump, but they're thinking much more broadly. 
uh, about the whole situation. And so I would agree with the idea that it, 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 it's really about his base. That's certainly true. But I think the biggest effect that we're going to have in the, the things that people are worried about, the thing that people are worried about, is when and if we have a redo of 2000, Bush versus Gore, we're going to have an automatic presidency for Donald Trump and an automatic second term. There's no question about it. Justice Kavanaugh, to your point, is now the midpoint justice. And so we've gone two justices up in just two years. So, you know, because, of course, uh, the Chief Justice John Roberts has been the midpoint, the midpoint justice, and now that goes to Justice Kavanaugh. And that's a scary thing, since he hasn't done a whole lot to indicate moderation, although he did have the one vote on, I believe it was health care. Do you agree with Dan, especially when we think about uh, what's going to happen after this election? President Trump has already said, as Dan mm -hmm. mentioned, that he would contest this election depending mm -hmm. on the result. I think that, you know, President Trump is thinking about the long game in terms of the next two months. And I think the bright spot in this, in spite of Dan, as you said, having that new inflection point, we've seen two cases come up already where the court has refused to hear it with absentee ballots, with curbside access for senior voters and th for those with disabilities. And I think some people were surprised because they thought that any challenge to an effort to protect and extend the ability to vote would see a different outcome. So there's a glimmer of hope there, but I also think that people need to be aware this will be a fight. And as you said before, that fight will not end on election day. In some ways it will just begin. I mentioned earlier, Jonathan, that uh, more Democrats are requesting absentee ballots and returning them than Republicans and unaffiliated. So just knowing that, does that give an opening for President Trump to challenge the outcome of this election, if we believe what the polls are saying, that he is behind Biden? I will say one thing about Republican voters. They do turn out. And so even if they're not turning in the ballots, they do show up. Even during midterm elections, Republicans show up, or even the people who lean Republican. Even in a state like Connecticut, where the party may not be the majority, but there are a lot of leaners out there who are unaffiliated voters, and they will show up. So I think the expectation is going to be there. Certainly, you're seeing even a high turnout in states where they have early voting already, and that's been intriguing, too. So I, I'm going to be especially interested in seeing the results uh, that evening. But I think it's going to go on for, for a while beyond that. Um, when I asked Dan earlier about uh, whether voters in Connecticut are thinking about the makeup of the Supreme Court, and he talked more about um, they're, they're thinking about the issues, uh, what do you think in terms of the, the voters you've been talking with? It, the Supreme Court has, has been mentioned, but it's only because of what's gone on with the appointment process, more than anything else. The procedures, the dynamics, the dramatics. I mean, the idea of a walkout, you know, would be very typical of a political notion in the era that we're in right now. It is terribly hyperpartisan. It shouldn't be surprising, but it's a reality of the era that we're in right now. When we look at the 6-3 conservative majority, uh, Dan, thinking about the impact of justice like Amy Comey, Coney Barrett, what it would mean for other issues before the court, talking about health care, talking about certain elections in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Well, health care is the, uh, the one that people are watching, of course, aside from uh, whatever comes to the court on Roe v. Wade, uh, which is a different discussion. I think there's going to be a lot more pressure on the court to maintain aspects of Roe v. Wade. Remember, that's a state's rights decision, which is a conservative concept. It's not necessarily all about reproductive rights. Um, but as far as health care, 
I just don't think politically that the Republicans want to be in a position where 22 million people lose health care and they don't have a viable alternative uh, because they've already rejected um, uh, the obviously the Medicaid Medicare for all is it that's that may really be socialized medicine depending on the version of it but even a publicly directed option they've rejected and that's really the most moderate way of delivering health care to a lot of people short of having uh, uh, Obamacare back the way we have it now and uh, I think they're going to back themselves into the corner and to Kalila's point about the Supreme Court and politics uh, it's really always been a political you know uh, body that's what it is and and they understand that they can't back the party into a corner. It certainly shows how divided our country and politics has become. I think I read that this is the first time in 150 years where there, the vote for a justice has been so partisan. Well, I guess it can't be more partisan other than the one vote by <laughs> Senator Collins. Um, yeah, we, I think we all like to look back, uh, regardless of what side of the aisle we're on, we like to look back on a time that may or may not have ever existed um, my concern about the issues is not that the leadership is, is divided. It's that people that I talk with, and even myself and my own thoughts and colleagues, can't seem to understand that all of these issues have two sides, right? So I find myself arguing uh, for, you know, for example, for Obamacare and for the restoration of the mandate uh, and so forth because of this, because of that. But in, in all cases, there are anecdotes on both sides, and that's what makes this complicated. And that layer of complication is what we've lost. Not so much the divided leadership, but the divided view of issues among the whole population. Kalila, do you agree with Dan? I do, and I think that's lost not just for elected officials and leadership, but it's lost amongst the American public. That ability to consider nuance and context, that you and I can disagree without you being a bad person unless we are disagreeing on my humanity. Then all bets are off. But that notion of hyper-partisanship, the inability to at least see the core, that we all want the same thing. How we get there may be different, but we all want to feel safe. We all want to feel like we are working towards something that is better. And I think getting beyond the hyper-partisanship will be a challenge, regardless of who's in the White House. So what will it look like for voters on Election Day? Election data show many voters who plan to vote in person are Republicans. More Democrats and unaffiliated voters have applied for absentee ballots. Connecticut has been fairly strict about requiring residents to wear masks while in public. But does that mean it will be enforced at your local polling location? CT News Junkie Editor-in-Chief and NBC Connecticut reporter Christine Stewart tells us something that may surprise you. So if a maskless voter shows up at the polls, they should still be allowed to vote. Um, they have plans in place for this. Obviously, they're going to ask them if they would put on a mask and keep everybody at the polling place safe. Uh, a voter can refuse to do this, and they could be asked to uh, vote in a specific location in the polling place to protect the poll workers. Um, they could be asked to maybe fill out their ballot um, outside of the polling place and then return it to the polling place. Uh, but there are plans in place uh, for moderators at these polls to ask voters to either put on a mask or find a different way for them to vote. Uh, and we do have Governor Lamont's executive order that does say that everybody needs to be wearing a, a mask in public. So I don't know exactly what consequences there would be for a maskless voter once they left the polling place. But 
um, it does not trump their, their right to vote. Uh, Dan, you have talked to town clerks. I know Hearst reporters have spoken with registrars. Is this something they're worried about on election day? Well, I think the problem is not whether people with ma without masks should be allowed to vote and what's the process. It's that in places where uh, there are a lot of voters at, at one time, and there will be some of those, even though we're going to be down to 1.1 million voters voting versus 1.6 in the 2016 election in person. There still will be lines in some places. The concern is orderliness. The, the concern is not uh, so much with how should we make sure that people vote uh, who don't have a mask, and because, because this is not a policy decision. This is the law. You can't take away someone's right to vote if they refuse to wear a mask. And so to Christine's point, there are all kinds of ways of doing that. But I think the concern is how to make the, or, the system orderly. And in states where they're, they're swing states, that really could drive away voters. Because if the line goes from one hour to two hours because of a systematic refusal to wear a mask by people who want to make a stink, that could affect the election. I believe more than half a million voters now have voted by absentee, according to the Secretary of the State's office. When we think about how people are voting, whether they're using the drop boxes or putting it in the mail, it's too late now to do that. What have you found out, Dan? Well, it's about two-thirds. Uh, I talked with a number of town clerks, and it's about it, the range was from a little over half to about 80% using the boxes versus the mail. And this goes back to early October. Now it's going to be 100%, as you, to your point, from this point on. Um, that surprised me. I thought it would be closer to 40% of the boxes, and some people are scoffing at the boxes. People are never going to use the boxes. It's turning out to be about two-thirds box, right? And that's, while that's a good thing, I think you have to look at the overall turnout of absentee ballots. J Jonathan said, well, it's heavy. I don't consider 545,000 to this point being heavy, considering that we originally were, were talking about a little over a million voting absentee, based on the 59% that voted absentee in the August 11th primaries. So I think we're a little behind, and the Republicans will tell you, J.R. Romano will tell you, as he did with me last night, he says, that shows a little bit of an enthusiasm gap on the part of Democrats, doesn't it? The fact that 545,000 is relatively low. So there are two ways of looking at it. You mentioned J.R. Romano. He's the chair of the state GOP party, at least until uh, June. I think I saw you shaking your head, Kalilo, when Dan was talking about yeah. this lack of enthusiasm. I don't think it's an enthusiasm gap at all. I think if you take Connecticut to the side and think about people waiting in line for four, five, six hours in Texas, in North Carolina, I don't think it's about enthusiasm. I think it's about fear and uncertainty. And when we've all been exposed on social media or in conversation about why you can't trust the drop-off boxes or why you shouldn't trust this idea of an absentee ballot, will your ballot actually count? That then has an impact on what people decide to do. And I think it's why Election Day is so key when people are thinking about how do I do this safely and keeping myself protected and still be able to exercise this highest call of citizenship. Jonathan, you mentioned that Republicans do show up. And so when we think about just a few days before Election Day, uh, the day that we're taping this, uh, that there is a spike now, positivity rate in our state of more than 6%. Have local and state officials done enough to ensure to voters who have yet to vote that it is safe to show up on November 3rd? I think the best thing they can do is just communicate out that they're trying to find some ways, some standards to follow. And I will add to what Dan is offering here. Election Day registration is going to be a major concern we can't overlook in all of this because the numbers have been significant, especially in cities. So one never knows. 
My biggest fear is, is the state ready to have enough moderators there to be there on hand? Because in the past, it's been a significant issue in a place like New Haven where a lot of people do show up, they're not registered officially, and they're trying to at least make sure that they're on the rolls to begin to vote. And usually in too many cities, it's only one location and not enough staff people on the state side. So what do we know about how a city like New Haven is planning for same-day registration? As Jonathan mentioned, in 2016, long, long lines. Uh, and I'm just wondering how the city has thought proactively about how to handle this, Kalala. What do you know? Well, I think if you listen to the registrars, they've tried to be proactive. They've done a lot of outreach to local colleges and universities, including my campus, to say, if you are planning to vote, be a good neighbor and go ahead and register in advance. They've been able to bring in more staffing. And Lucy, we're just excited that the forecast says sunshine because Jonathan will tell you when it was raining that election and ballots were sticking together and the machines were being jammed. I think that kind of procedural failure, what I hope comes out of all of this, and certainly we see it at New Haven, is how do we run elections differently, not just during a pandemic, but every year to increase access, protect the vote. That's the conversation in New Haven and really across the state. Dan, I wanted to follow up when you talked about enthusiasm for voting. NPR reported that in a few states, the number of early votes cast by 18 to 29-year-olds has exceeded the number of early votes by that same age group in 2016. That's good news. Well, it is, and they feel like they have a stake in it. My daughter is in that group, uh, and she'll certainly be voting. I think there are a lot of people... Uh, in in her circle anyway, who are um, disappointed that the Democratic nominee is more of a centrist. Um, you know, obviously there was a tremendous more tremendous amount of enthusiasm for the two candidates on the far left in the Democratic Party. But yeah, I think that portends well. Um, there's no question that we're going to get a record turnout, and there's no question that that's because of Donald Trump. The election is not about issues, and the election is not about Biden, and the election is not about tradition. It's about Donald Trump, and it's about his personality and his character. Um, and he's the one who's driving these divisions that we were just talking about five minutes ago in respect to uh, how we view issues, everything being divided. We, it, this all started, this cycle started, I think, in, you know, back in 1995 with the contract, was it with or on America? Uh, and Newt That's Ging- how you see it. And, yes, and Newt Gingrich, um, you know, and the culture wars, culture wars two or three, whatever it is. But it's really gotten to a cancerous level at this point, and that's what the election is about. Before we wrap up here on this particular topic, Jonathan, uh, if we were to go back in time, if we had a president who took this pandemic seriously, who embraced the science, who didn't deny that masks were important, do you think that it'd be a different story for President Trump, that the idea that Dan said a lot of people are showing up because it's a vote against the president? Well, it could be a vote against the president. I, I won't dispute that, but I think there's also a serious concern about just Washington politics in general. And even internally, we can't forget, it's not like the Democrats are all singing Kumbaya and they all get along. Dan brought up, there's that wing of the party we can't ignore, especially Bernie Sanders supporters, and especially younger people. And out of what he even offered, the truth is, Harvard University came out with a study just this week that over 63% of young people under 30 are expected to be participating in this election. And in the past, you're lucky to get anywhere near 50%. So if this could be speaking towards any of this, whether it's Trump or not, it's a generational pull, certainly for Generation Y and Z. There's no doubt about that. And so I'm going to be very interested in knowing that generation gap. You know, will the boomers and the greatest generation, you know, be matched up against Generation Y and Z? And as Gen Xer, I just want to watch and eat the popcorn and see what happens <laughs> next. <laughs>
Well, we know the presidential race gets the most attention this election year, but we can't forget important down-ballot races in Connecticut. Let's start with Connecticut's congressional seats, like the 5th District, where freshman lawmaker Representative Johanna Hayes faces Republican challenger David X. Sullivan. The pandemic has made it difficult for candidates to talk with voters in person. Many of them have gone online using Zoom forums to connect with constituents. But as Hearst, Connecticut's Washington correspondent Emily Munson explains, going online has brought up new challenges. Just to look big picture here for a moment, we know that this is a highly polarized election. Um, we know that racism is active and alive in our country. We know that President Donald Trump has disrupted a lot of the norms of political discourse and mutual respect and cooperation in politics. And um, we also know that because of the pandemic, there's been new online opportunities for hackers to be disruptive and um, penetrate events, sometimes in the realm of politics. And so I think we've seen all of these factors come together in a confluence in a couple different ways in Connecticut this cycle. Um, first, in the first district, um, that's Representative John Larson's district. He uh, was having a debate with Republican Mary Fay, who is the first um, openly gay Connecticut congressional candidate, as well as uh, his Green Party challenger, Tom McCormick. And a Zoom bomber um, hacked that event and posted dozens of profane and violent comments in the chat. And that was very disruptive to the participants in this debate. Uh, then hop over to the third district. That's where um, an image of Representative Rosa Doloro's severed head held by the Christopher Columbus statue in New Haven was circulated. And then in the fifth district, um, Representative Johanna Hayes was holding a campaign event over Zoom, which was disrupted by participants who made racist comments to her, uh, racist statements in the chat, played what she called derogatory music, disrupting this event. And uh, those individuals had to be ejected from that event. And Hayes, who is the first black Congresswoman representing Connecticut was very disturbed by this and um, publicly expressed a lot of her feelings um, dealing with this outright racism confronting her campaign. I wanted to follow up uh, with what Emily shared with us, Kalila. In an online essay, Congresswoman Hayes wrote, I am not okay after this Zoom bombing, that this is not the first time this has happened in my life or that I've had to explain that this happens. Black women are expected to press on, to ignore this behavior, to not talk explicitly about it. Words matter and they cut deep. How did you react when you heard about what happened to Representative Hayes and then also how she was very candid in this essay about it not being okay? This is not something to ignore or to say, you know, it's, it's an isolated incident. This happens and I need to speak out about it. You know, I wasn't surprised at all when I heard it. What I was surprised by was her candor because especially as an elected official, to be the first can be a very lonely position because you are expected to represent on behalf of an entire group but still be stoic in how you do it. And this to me, Lucy, isn't about partisanship. It's about basic human decency. And how do we restore that? 
And the other thing, the juxtaposition of at the same time where you're seeing these racist attacks, you're seeing these identity-based attacks, the president has said, we are not going to teach people or talk about diversity anymore because that's divisive. What we're seeing every day is divisive. And how do we get people to understand why that's problematic, why it discourages not only Congresswoman Hayes, but other people who may want to go into public service or have something to contribute as well? Dan, we heard Emily talk about what also happened to Mary Fay, who's running against John Larson. In that a Zoom conversation, uh, the uh, profanity and the obscene uh, remarks uh, that were interrupting that particular uh, conversation. Why is this happening? Can we all can we put it all on the, the the footsteps and the feet of Donald Trump? You're goading me to blame Trump. I can see that, and and I guess I'll bite in a very small degree. I think he represents. Uh, it, it is in this case, I'll say it's not that he's causing it. It's that he represents what's out there in this anger. And part of it is um, the what we've been talking about, the uncivil, relatively uncivil times that we're living in. And part of it is the decline of the empire. We are a declining empire. I guess I can never run for office again now, having said, you know, but it's, you know, the, we've had a good 250 year run and we're, we're sort of, a you know, the rest of the world is catching up and that's fine. Uh, but that causes economic hardship, and let's make it, let's make it clear: a lot of this is about about anger that arises from people not being able to get ahead. They take it out on other people. They take it out on on Italians. They take it out on black people. They take it on Jews. They take it on gay people. Whatever it is, um, I don't understand exactly why Zoom can't, without a warrant or a subpoena, find the person who did. It doesn't seem all that hard to me. And that's we're all shaking our heads in the newsroom. Wait a minute. Just call Zoom and say, who was that? But apparently they're invoking the need for a warrant, and it's very difficult, of course, to get a warrant to get to the bottom of this. But that's beside the point. The point is that people are angry broadly, and they take it out on groups. And certainly, Jonathan, in these particular cases, in this pandemic, so many, so much of our life is online in these Zoom conversations. It's easy to be sexist and racist on a Zoom forum instead of standing up in, in front of uh, your whole community and saying these things to a candidate's face. Or you do it on social media in general. We see a lot of this, obviously, on Twitter and certainly on Facebook. Actually, this is an interesting topic because a colleague of mine in the journalism department Jody Gill and I are putting together, and we've submitted already an article about this, online forums with city hall meetings and even to discussions and debates and how the cities and towns have prepared for this in light of COVID. The problem is, is that uh, in many ways, the towns and the cities, they're not that familiar in setting this up. And so we're doing a comparative study of four towns in particular. There are differences in terms of how to actually operate this in a public forum like this one. It's, it is not as easy as people think. Um, there's a required a lot of training, certainly a lot of uh, significant resources to operate something like this. So, and to go back to Dan's point, during an economic crisis like the one we're in right now, it is easy to blame, cast, you know, blame towards a group. We've seen this throughout U.S. history, unfortunately. Kalila, we always want to talk about where we can go from here. Obviously, a big election that we still need to find out uh, what's going to happen. But in terms of healing this country and getting to a better place, is that only possible if Joe Biden were to win? You know, I think we didn't get here overnight, and we won't move away from this overnight. And if anyone thinks that what we're experiencing right now in terms of the rhetoric, the divisiveness, the action, the organized action, that does not begin nor does it end with Donald Trump. 
And so whoever is president after this election will have a major task of how do you bring people together, especially in the midst of national crisis, in order to move forward. We're seeing a sort of tribalism that we haven't seen for a very long time. You know, the appeals to who is the best representative of this group, who is authentic in that. And so I don't think we can attach that to one person. That's about structure and culture. That's a perfect point to bring up with the discussion of the third congressional district. Uh, before we get to that, this is election 2020, a Connecticut conversation. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our panelists tonight are Kalila Brown-Dean, political science professor at Quinnipiac University and host of the Connecticut public radio show, Disrupted. Dan Haar is here, columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Again, Hearst is collaborating on the production of tonight's election special with Connecticut Public. And Jonathan Wharton, political science associate professor at Southern Connecticut State University. Now, we've been talking about important down-ballot races, and Connecticut's third district race is also one to watch where longtime incumbent Democrat Rosa DeLauro is facing a strong challenge from Republican Margaret Stryker, and this race has gotten personal. Hearst, Connecticut's Washington correspondent Emily Munson says the removal of a Christopher Columbus statue from Worcester Square in New Haven back in June has been a focus of debate between the two candidates. So the third district race is between uh, Representative Rosa DeLauro, who's represented the district since 1991, and Republican Margaret Stryker, who is a wealthy landlord who manages uh, apartment buildings all around the nation. And uh, this is a solid blue district, but um, Stryker is a more competitive challenger than DeLauro has had uh, in many years. Uh, she, by um, writing checks to her own campaign, she's been able to buy television advertisements and she's forced DeLauro to counter with her own TV ads for the first time since 1992, actually. And, um, there's, there's a lot of differences between these candidates on issues like um, jobs and healthcare and taxes. But as you mm -hmm. mentioned, uh, Christopher Columbus has become a bit of a flashpoint in this race. Uh, there's a prominent statue of Columbus in New Haven. Um, and when the national conversation this spring and summer uh, turned to um, symbols of the Confederacy, there was conversations about whether this monument should be removed. And um, that issue has divided DeLauro and Stryker. DeLauro, who is an Italian-American, says she, she supports taking it down. Um, Stryker said she wanted to leave up the statue and um, she doesn't want to erase history. And in addition, um, there was an image circulated of DeLauro during this race, which was a picture of DeLauro's severed head held by the Columbus statue. It was pretty graphic and it was it was taken down right away um, and condemned by both sides. So Kalila, picking up on your point about tribalism, seeing this race play out in New Haven, are you surprised by uh, the conversations that are happening where you have the Republican challenger questioning Rosa DeLauro's Italian roots, then you have Rosa DeLauro's campaign putting out a statement that we have all of these Jewish American mm -hmm. supporters because Margaret Stryker is Jewish. You know, to see these competing letters that come out from here is a contingent of Jewish voters who support me. Here's a contingent of Italian voters who support me. 
And what we lose sight of in that, Lucy, is that it wasn't too long ago in history that people who were Jewish were not allowed to attend particular schools, that people who were Italian weren't allowed to, to live in particular neighborhoods. And so I'd push back a little for um, Dan and Jonathan. I think it's less about economic anxiety and more about this fear of erasure. And fear is such a powerful motivation in American politics, whether we agree with it or not. So it's less about the statue of Christopher Columbus. It's more about what that represents and people feeling like their issues are not being centered. But I think I have to say it, it's absolutely ridiculous to regulate someone's Italianness or someone's Jewishness based on some artificial marker. And it resonates because of that fear. Dan, what do you think? Um, well, I mean, I certainly agree with Kalila's point about fear. Uh, I would, it's, it's maybe a little bit of both types of fear. I, my observation is that uh, Representative DeLauro was more upset about not getting the endorsement of, what was the Italian-American group? Uh, it was, was it the Sons of Italy? It was one of the Italian-American civic groups. And she seemed, from her reactions, to be more upset over that. And she talked about her parents being immigrants and, and how this could never happen in any other country very emotionally even then that horrific image of her severed head. Um, and that really tells you that these, we, we, we can try to be a post-ethnic, post-nationalist society, but we're not going to be uh, anytime soon. Jonathan, you know New Haven uh, pretty well. Are you surprised at this 15-term uh, incumbent, powerful legislator, Rosa DeLauro, having to finally buy TV ads uh, for a re-election campaign against a woman that many people have never heard of before? I was taken back by that. And I think even internally among the Democrats, there's this, been this concern in terms of how many more terms will Rosa DeLauro be in office. Obviously, she's very effective at constituent relations. There's no doubt about that. But as you point out, she's been there since 1991. So there's always been talk of, internally within the party, at least among the Democrats, who would step up and challenge even in the primaries. And there was some attempts, at least a while back, but nothing really has come to fruition. As far as Margaret Stryker, she's been trying to just strike away at whatever is possible to get as many of those people who are unaffiliated voters to be on her side because of Rosa DeLauro being in office for so long. There's also something else we're ignoring on all of this, beyond the fear, which does work in politics. We can't ignore that. I won't discount that at all. It's also the generation gap between the two. You know, one candidate's well in her 70s, the other one is in her 40s. So it goes back to what does this mean for the next generation as soon as within the next two, maybe 10 years, depending on how long Rosa DeLauro will remain in office. We just don't know, especially in the New Haven area. Do you think this seat is flippable? Well, we can't forget that there was a Republican elected in the 1980s, Larry Donardis, as a matter of fact, under the Reagan wave. One never knows. Well, I'll ask you the same question. Do you think it's flippable? Especially that Margaret Stryker is um, using so much of her own money. The Connecticut Mirror reporting that she put $1.6 million of her own money into the campaign, about a million dollars just in this last month. You never say never, but I think that Delora's support is so strong across communities, and that's a strength for her. So even to have Stryker come forth and have the support of the New Haven Police Union, for example, and make a vote for her really a referendum on this nationwide pushback to reform and accountability, I think that's only going to go so far for people who said, I was willing to put my health on the line to protest over the summer because I think that this is long overdue. Dan? Uh, I think that her, her top point is 45, 46 percent Margaret Stryker's 
politics is still local. She's not of the district. Whether she lives in the district is a matter of, of well, let's just say, she's not local. And she doesn't have any kind of local history. She's running a generic campaign. It could be aimed at any Democrat anywhere. The same charges of socialism and this sort of thing. It's not particularly aimed at anything. The only attack that she's had on Representative DeLauro is the free rent that she gave uh, you know, in her basement. Um, that's her Rahm Emanuel. That's right, yeah. yes. <laughs> so, you know, and, that, and that's a great charge. That's great. We love that sort of thing. But it really hasn't been primarily a locally based uh, race. I think if somebody like Themis Claritus had run, who's from, uh, I believe she's in that district. And it's it, Derby, it's about. Yeah, in Derby, that's mm -hmm. right, yep, yep. Uh, you know, she's well-known locally, and she's popular locally, and she's the sitting uh, Republican leader of the state house. Then you would have had a local race where the Democrat and a popular Republican, and you could see somebody steal the race or top out at 49% to 51. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in this race. Uh, quickly, Dan, contrasting the 3rd District with the 5th District, very different demographics. Is that flippable with uh, David X. Sullivan? Do you think he has a chance with Johanna Hayes? That was a district that voted for Trump in 2016. Yeah, there again, no, because David Sullivan, uh, a decent uh, and good guy that he is, has not been a very effective campaigner. He did not get enough money raised to qualify for the Republican committee money. And that's a big cutoff. In other words, it's essentially the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, the RCCC, has determined that he was not a winnable race. And if they've determined it, I mean, certainly it's up to the voters, but that takes away a lot of resources for him. It's an amazing district, though. Because obviously that's, that was obviously Nancy Johnson's and even, you know, Gary Frank's district. And so talk about a good Republican base potentially in the future. One never knows. Yeah. yeah, which raises the question, why are Republicans in race after race after race in Connecticut at all levels, including the state House and the state Senate, running Republicans who have no elected office experience? Why? And that's a question for J.R. Romano. <laughs> Races to fill the Connecticut General Assembly are also on the ballot. This year, several prominent lawmakers are leaving the legislature. Christine Stewart, CT News Junkie Editor-in-Chief and NBC Connecticut reporter, she says expect to see some changes at the state capitol. So there's, there's no expectation that... Um, the Republican or the minority party will actually um, gain seats this year. Um, but three of the four um, legislative leaders are not returning. So we have House Minority Leader Themis Claritus, um, Senate Republican Leader uh, Len Fizano, and we have House Speaker Joe Arasimowitz, who are not returning. So the only one left is um, Senate President Martin Looney. Um, so he is the only one running for re-election. So it is going to look very very different. Um, I think that we pretty much know who the leaders will be um, following the election. That's given they win their re-election uh, campaign. Uh, and I think that next year is going to look very different in the General Assembly anyways to how they conduct business, uh, whether they come back into this building in January, um, how they hold public hearings, um, you know, if there is a vaccine or if there isn't a vaccine. I feel like there is going to be a lot of uh, remote legislating that is going to have to be um, going on. And so it's going to be a very interesting year. And, and leadership plays a big role. Uh, leadership, you know, all four leaders of all four caucuses are very instrumental in how this building operates. Um, and so I think that Martin Looney being the only one who is returning as a leader is going to have a lot, a lot of say and a, and a lot of power 
um, for how this building uh, operates. So Dan, I want to go back to you. If you could give us the breakdown. So we know Representative Themis Claritas uh, leaving, Senator Len Fasano leaving, Speaker Joe Arasimowitz leaving, Democrat Matt Ritter expected to become Speaker of the House. Who are some other legislators that are going to step into these roles? Uh, well, I had kind of thought that it was still up in the air between uh, Senator Whitcoast and Senator Kelly, both named Kevin. At least we know there will be a Kevin, but I'm, I, I guess I was hearing that it was it was Kelly's now to lose. Uh, just to Christine's point, it has happened that a would-be speaker lost her election. That was Jesse Stratton back in, I guess, about 02. I, maybe I'm, it may have been 90s, but it was a while back. So it isn't unheard of, but it won't happen in necessarily in any of these cases. Uh, and then, of course, we have, um, wait, who are we missing? Uh, Martin Looney. Yeah. Vincent Candelora. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Very popular personally. Uh, and, you know, politically, I think he's f further to the right than uh, even, even some people in the caucus, but very popular personally. And they've already started putting him out there as the spokesman, the spokesperson for the caucus. And, and the amazing guy is, is Marty Looney, Senator Looney, who just, uh, I wrote a column about in 2016, he needed a new kidney and a new hip. And he was 10 years older than the next oldest caucus leader, which was uh, uh, Senator Fasano. But he's still at it with no plans to stop. Jonathan, let me ask you more about uh, Republican Vincent Candelore expected to become House Minority Leader. Also, Christine made a statement that uh, she doesn't think that the Republicans are going to gain uh, many seats. Do you think that's the case? I, I think we're hearing, at least what I'm hearing, both sides of the case. One never knows with these elections, but during a national election, it can be a bigger concern because of the turnout business. And I think that having so many possible leadership positions up now, this is a rare moment, even for the Republicans, because we're also, as you mentioned, J.L. Romano, going to be looking for a new chair for the party. How rare is this a moment for a minority party like the Republican Party to deal with now leadership changes across the board of both chambers and the party? This is the time. So in my heart of hearts, I'm hoping that among, you know, potential candidates for the chair, for the state party, as well as the leaders for both chambers and the Republican Party, they can find pathways of working together. That's been missing for a while. And so it's been overdue. And this is just on the heels of, obviously, a future gubernatorial election. So it'd be, the timing would be ripe, despite what's going on nationally. Clara, this might be uh, insider baseball uh, for some people who are watching who may not know who uh, these lawmakers are, but maybe talk broadly about why it matters, uh, who's leading these caucuses when we think about the priorities for the state in the next year. Right. I think we spend a lot of time talking about the national level, but it's been made clear this year that the everyday issues that affect us really happen at the local and state level. So to think about the future of public education in our state in the midst of this pandemic, of how long that's going to last, what that looks like, the ongoing discussion around this police accountability bill, and from a structural perspective, what will redistricting look like in the state of Connecticut once that census data is in? Because then it's not just about a person having power, it is about how a party can have more power than the other party, but also how they can communicate internally about what the priority should be and what they're willing to sacrifice. Add to that, as Jonathan said, the run-up to the gubernatorial election. And this really could be about how people experience life day to day in Connecticut. How much money gets produced in all of this, 
but also the policy. You touched on something that I, I want to spend a little time on, and that's the fact that this year you see uh, several police unions going ahead and endorsing, which they don't normally do, endorsing Republican opponents running in the General Assembly because they're upset about this police accountability law. Do you think that that will translate to voters, this issue? Well, I think we're hearing it from a number of Republican officials to make this the issue and to make the failure to, as some people say, make those kinds of changes the thing. You know. Two Republican leaders were in New Haven yesterday in a neighborhood where they would not normally be to center opposition to this police accountability bill. And to have unions who are endorsing candidates makes it clear that this is not going to go away. Even not having someone in the position to determine what those investigations will look like, I think the legislature will have to deal with it, but voters will also be looking. Dan, did you want to add something? I think it came as a surprise to... Uh, in the case of two sitting Democratic senators who were attacked, not physically, although one was maybe potentially spit at, represent, or rather Senator uh, Bob Duff and, and Senator Christine Cohen, who both had you know, these sort of attacks at them over that bill. And the reason I say it was a surprise is because the bill, in the eyes of many Democrats, was already significantly watered down. The provision that allows the state, the newly seated investigation arm, the, the separate independent investigator, to take action is only on actions by the uh, uh, police that are, what is it, heinous? I just remember the word heinous. You know, in other words, they really have to rise pretty high up. And to some extent, I think the police unions are uh, doing what they're supposed to do, which is react strongly to everything. And to some extent, it's that they're reacting to the prior version of the bill. And even though it changed, that didn't seem to sink in. Jonathan, did you want to talk about uh, this issue? I, I was more concerned about the timing of all this, to be frank with you. I mean, to happen to try to pass this as quickly as they did during the summer, in the midst of a pandemic, in a special legislative session, this is a major piece of legislation. So the timing of this really does matter. And I think there was concern that not enough time was, you know, at least focused on doing more investigative work, more legwork. So we're now seeing, in, just in the last month or two, a lot of these concerns, election season or not in terms of what to do about revising the law now, because there's talk of this, at least in the near future. You talk about timing. I can't help but think of the widespread protests, the, the voices of many Americans who said something needs to change. Would it have been negligent of our lawmakers to ignore that call for change? No, I think it would be a matter of the lawmakers taking their time and understanding how to go about that change and doing it skillfully and carefully. I think that's what's, what matters the most when it comes to the legislative process. Kalala, do you agree? I don't, because I think that George Floyd's death was a catalyst for a national conversation. But we've been hearing from communities, not just activists, but communities really for decades in Connecticut to say something has to change, whether it was the racial profiling bill and the question of does that actually get to the change. So the timing is key. But I always wonder what more research could be done. How many more conversations? Because as Dan said, there was already this division within a party about is this actually just sort of a symbolic gesture? Will it really have the substantive change? And if you can't reach that agreement within communities who at least agree there's a problem, I'm not sure that you would get to the step of saying this is a systemic challenge that needs to be addressed. Now, we're almost out of time, but I have to ask, Dan, you've been watching the polls when we think about November 3rd and the outcome after from the presidential race. Uh, what sticks out to you? 
what sticks out is that the president holds the three venues for arbitration. Eight of the nine swing states are controlled by Republican legislatures. The U.S. House of Representatives, in the potential event of a tie or a complete meltdown, which picks the president, is Republican-controlled, even though the numbers are Democratic because it goes by delegation, and there are 29 uh, Republican delegations. And, of course, we've already talked about the Supreme Court. That's the thing I'm thinking about, not so much the vote. Biden has a 3 or 4% lead in the swing states, maybe up to 7 in Wisconsin, and he may need every bit of it. Jonathan? Generational politics. I'm stressing that over and over again. I'm waiting and chomping at the bit to see what the results will be on that. The state business is great. It's nice. It speaks well. The whole Trump, anti-Trump, that's old news. Everybody knows that. I want to know how many people are going to turn out on each, from each generation, and will it really matter this time around? What's your advice to voters, Jonathan? Do your homework, as they should in any election. Know who you're voting for. And don't be so consumed in terms of what's going on in Washington. See what takes place also on the state level, because we obviously have some contentious state races, too. Now, Kalila, you and Jonathan, you, you are speaking with college students every day. Uh, when they talk about polls and uh, what to follow, uh, what are you telling them? You know, I tell them to look for sources that you don't think you would agree with because it's always important to be literate, media literate, but also to be able to understand those different perspectives. And one of the things that we've been talking with our students a lot about is, yes, have a vote plan, but also have a post-election plan. How are you going to stay civically engaged? How are you going to pursue the issues that you care about? And how are you going to do that in a way that is safe and productive? And I think that's the message really for all of us. Now, we talked about uh, divisions earlier. Are you worried at all, depending on the outcome, what's going to happen on the streets of our country? I'm incredibly concerned. I think when you hear credible plans from an organized militia to kidnap a sitting governor, it helps you understand the heightened nature of this tension, that it's not just about words, even though words can be damaging. It is the ability to act on that. And that's where I think we have to have a partnership across levels and a basic agreement and commitment to keeping people safe. Uh, Dan, I asked uh, Jonathan his advice to voters. I know you're going to be out there on election day and night. Uh, what will you be watching for? Well, I'm, I'm, locally, I think you have to watch things like, or even nationally, you have to watch things like the weather. Uh, you can watch the Las Vegas betting lines. There, there are record amounts being bet in England. Of course, it's not legal to bet on politics in this country, at least openly. Uh, record amounts being bet, and, and right now it's, uh, uh, Biden is a negative 180, which means if you bet $180, you win 100. And, and so that, that, per, that gets to the, the likelihood. Uh, and I think I mentioned the weather, and I would watch the markets as well. The markets are all-knowing. Uh, we don't like the fact that they're all-knowing, but they are. And the markets, I, I guess, would slightly, they have no reason to fear Biden. But if you see an uptick in the markets, that could mean some hidden support. In the last few days on the national political press, you've started to see talk about the old hidden support for Trump. Nobody will admit, you remember in, in 2016, we think that's gone away, but it may not have. That's another thing to watch. That's interesting, the quiet uh, Trump the voters. quiet Trump, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, uh, just real quick, when we were thinking about what happened in 2016, uh, people don't want to believe the polls, but it really has to do with uh, the representation that pollsters bring in when they survey and making sure that they're weighted uh, properly. And so we shouldn't discount the polls, but we need to be careful which ones we're paying attention to. And if voters are lying or not, even exit polls, they don't always tell the truth. 
And I'm oftentimes teaching that in class. It hurts, but it's the reality. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak with all of you uh, before the election. I want to thank our panelists. Kalila Brown-Dean, she's political science professor and senior director for inclusive excellence at Quinnipiac University. And we're proud that she's host of the Connecticut Public Radio Show, Disrupted. Thank you, Kalila. Thank you, Lucy. Dan Haro is with us, columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut. We look forward to talking with you again on Election Day. Thank you. Great to be here. I'll be here then. And Jonathan Wharton, political science associate professor and interim associate graduate school dean at Southern Connecticut State University. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Lucy. Appreciate it. Also, thanks to Christine Stewart and Emily Munson. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On behalf of Connecticut Public, thanks for watching and listening to Election 2020, a Connecticut conversation. America Amplified. With the election just